Managing Violence Podcast, Season 4, Episode 1, Professor Matt Larson. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Managing Violence Podcast. This is Joe Saunders here, and I am so excited to be back, not only with one of my favorite repeat guests, but also one of my favorite human beings in the entire martial arts and violence management world, Mr. Matt Larson, Director of Combatives at West Point Academy, black belt holder in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, Judo, Karate, and probably a bunch of stuff I don't know about. If you want to learn more about Matt Larson, make sure you listen to his uh, amazing interview in Season 1, uh, Episode 7, I believe, off the top of my head. Today we dive into a very important topic. If you are responsible for learning martial arts, learning physical skills, learning combatives, or teaching it to other people, you need to listen to this episode. Matt is an expert when it comes to the transmission of physical skills, and we dive into the different phases of learning. We talk about uh, cognitive and associative programming. We talk about the encoding of information. We talk about contextualization and instructional schemas. And if that goes way over your head right now, don't worry. Matt's going to break it down and explain it to you. This episode will make you more competent at learning physical skills and teaching physical skills. So no matter what that means for you, this episode will be a help to you. Before we dive into Matt, Please remember to check out our Facebook group, Managing Violence Tribe. It is an amazing melting pot of learned martial artists and violence management practitioners coming together to discuss important topics with no politics, no egos, and no bullshit so far. We're doing a really good job. Make sure you check that out. I am blown away at the quality that we are providing in that space so far. Also, make sure you check out my website, www.josaunders.com.au. It is back live. I'm putting out articles, videos, and audio on a regular basis. And also, don't forget to check out our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash managing violence. Starting this episode, bonus content is available for all subscribers on our Patreon account. And uh, while we're on the subject of Patreon, we need to extend a, a big warm welcome to the newest Tribal Council member, Mr. Dag Helly, and also our two newest tribal elders, Mr. Mick Bell and Mr. Daryl Ryan. Thank you for joining the Tribal Council and Tribal Elders, gentlemen. I look forward to working with you to shape the future and direction of the podcast. If you'd like to be part of the Tribal Council or Tribal Elders, head over to patreon.com forward slash managing violence, get all the perks and, uh, well, just perks, just perks. And now here's Matt Larson as soon as we pay some bills. This episode is brought to you by R2S Academy. If you're after premium e-learning courses in topics such as occupational violence prevention, security and safety awareness, behavioral observation and suspicious activity recognition, active armed offender management, fire safety and evacuation, stressful situation response, resilience building, and uh, well, so many more. Check out the full range of pre-built courses at www.r2s.academy. But that's not all. R2S Academy are learning design specialists and have built tailored risk, security, and emergency courses for companies and government entities in Australia and around the world. For more information, check out www.r2s.academy. And if you'd like 10% off your purchase, enter the coupon code JOEMVP. That's J-O-E-M-V-P. Check it out now. www.r2s.academy. 
Yeah, Matt, thanks for joining us again on the podcast, Matt. Uh, it's a great pleasure to have you back. Uh, as I was talking to you offline, the, your first episode was probably the most commented on and uh, the most feedback I've received from any episode in the first three seasons. Uh, probably one of my favorites. It's definitely top two or top three uh, for my favorite interviews. Um, I, I got so much out of it. I've had so many people that have uh, <laughs> that have emailed me saying they've listened to it three, four, five times and keep taking notes. So uh, you're, you're a much requested return guest. Oh, great. Thank you. It's good to be here, Joe. And uh, I enjoyed our last conversation and I'm looking forward to this one. Perfect. All right. Well, I'm not going to... Uh, spend too much time talking about your background uh, because we, we did that a lot in uh, in the first episode. But if you just want to give the uh, the 30 second cliff notes of who you are uh, for listeners that may not have listened to the first episode. All right. Well, my name is Matt Larson. I was a career army ranger. I was also in our Marine Corps. And um, most people know me because I was in charge of hand-to-hand combat training for our ranger regiment first and then eventually the whole army. So that's that's the most of it. I mean, now my current job is that I'm the director of combatants at, at our military academy at West Point, and I'm a uh, uh, and I'm also I also teach uh, psychology or evolutionary psychology of combat. Yeah, that, and that, a lot of that came up in the first episode. And uh, man, we we could probably do a whole series, whole season rather, <laughs> just uh, just on talking about evolutionary psychology of combat. That's uh, I, I don't I don't want to uh, jump too far ahead because I know you're writing a book about that and a PhD. So <laughs> eventually, eventually, we'll do a, a, a deep dive on that as well. But uh, what we want to talk about today, so. As I was mentioning again offline, uh, a lot of the feedback that we got from the first episode that we did together was uh, from coaches and uh, and other instructors, um, particularly uh, commenting that that it was great to get your insight into uh, how to teach and and how to establish a successful program. And and as we've been chatting in the in the, the time between the two episodes, uh, I know that's something you're particularly passionate about and you want to talk about. So. Uh, the, the floor is yours. Let's, let's talk a little bit about, um, firstly, how physical skills are transmitted and how we go about teaching them. Okay, so, so first, the first thing to understand is that most people who are teachers, they, are, they know their subject matter quite well, but that's an entirely different thing than, than having the ability or the knowledge of how to get it across to people or how how learning happens. So the, the process that of, of humans learning physical skills is quite well understood. It's, it's called the psychomotor learning process. And, and it has phases and understanding what those phases are is, is uh, important. So the first phase is called the cognitive phase. Well, let me, let me just outline the, the, the three phases are the cognitive phase. And the second phase is the associative phase. And the third phase is the autonomic phase. So let me just kind of describe those uh, first. The first one is is the cognitive phase. So imagine that's when you are first exposed to any technique or any ability. And what happens there, whether you're being shown it by somebody in person or you're looking at it on YouTube or you're trying to read it out of a book or something like that, what's going on is that your brain is processing the information that it brings in from its senses and then it's trying to tell your body to do some unfamiliar uh, action so 
So imagine you go to a martial arts seminar or a martial arts class and the person shows the technique and they may show it three or four times and all that time your brain is soaking in that, that information. And then when you go out to practice, you're trying to tell your body to do it. So it's, so it's, um, it's not that good to say the least. Okay. The second phase is the associative phase. And, and this is the, the most important one in the associative phase is where you take that stuff from your short-term memory and you put it into your long-term memory. And so, so imagine when you go to most seminars, you go to a seminar for a day and the person shows you 15 techniques, right? And it's fabulous. And, and most, most people who are doing seminars have great stuff to teach. And so you, you come out of there and you're totally impressed. You're like, wow, that was awesome. But if you've only, if you've approached that wrong, none of those techniques will be in your long-term memory. And therefore, when you leave at the end of the day, what you have actually learned will be very little. Okay. And the, and the last, and we'll talk today about how, how that process should work and, and um, some, some give you a, hopefully give everybody some understanding about, of how to make sure that you, you are learning or more importantly that your students are learning. And then the last one is the autonomic phase. So, so imagine this, right? Whenever a, a hockey player is skating down the ice, handling the puck, what are they thinking about? Because yeah, they're not thinking about the puck, are they? Yeah, they're not thinking about skating for sure, right? And they're probably not thinking about handling the puck. What they're thinking about is the tactics. Where are the people on my team? Where are the enemy? What, are we, what play are we running? What are we trying to accomplish here? They're thinking on that level. And the reason they are is because skating and puck handling, all the actual physical skills of hockey are in their autonomic nervous system. And which means they don't, they're not even thinking about it really. Your autonomic nervous system is the portion of your nervous system that handles like regulating your breathing and, and, and uh, you know, regulating your temperature and all those sorts of things. So when you're walking down the street and you're talking to somebody, it's just handling that, the walking portion. And so you're engaged in the conversation intellectually. So, so that's where we need fighting skills to be. We need to get them into our autonomic nervous system so that they will be automatic whenever they're needed. Like I say, you know, my, my, uh, my son, God bless him, he trained since he was three years old. And by the time he was a teenager, he was a very good fighter. Now he's in the Air Force, so he, he trains some. But, but if you grabbed him now, and he's almost 30 years old, he'll do the right thing. And he won't do the right thing because he even consciously remembers what the right thing is, maybe. He'll just do the right thing because that's just normal, natural movement to him because it's in his autonomic nervous system. So, so that's the goal. And it's an important thing to keep in mind that we need to get, we need to be, what we, what we learn in the class, what somebody shows us, isn't important at all if we don't get it to that phase because we won't be able to do it when we're fighting. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I can relate to that straight away. I know a number of the seminars that I've been to over the years, you have some that sort of, uh, yeah, I guess teach the seminar like it's a trailer for a movie, you know, like it, it can be very, very emotionally impacting because you've seen all this cool stuff and then, but you, you don't remember it by the time you've, you've left the cinema. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, yeah. that's the process. You know, what, what happens when you get to that third technique? So your, your short-term memory is limited, right? It can only handle so much information and it's just for going through your day. That's what it's for. And so 
So whenever you put something in your short-term memory, you know, you, you, sh you show that technique and they maybe try it a few times and, and then you go on to the next one. When you get to that third or fourth technique, you're starting to drop the earlier ones off of your short-term memory because it just doesn't have the capacity to hold that much, right? So, so the, the, the key then is, is what happens in the associative phase. That's whenever, so it's called the associative phase because, because of, well, some various reasons in neuroscience, but you'll, you'll get the gist as I try to explain what happens there. So the process that's going on from moving things from your short-term memory to your long-term memory is called encoding. Okay, so, so remember when you're a kid and you, and you got a, a list of vocabulary words in school and you knew you were gonna have a, a spelling test on those vocabulary words on Friday. So what did you do? Well, you probably went home and like wrote them down a whole bunch of times, right? Your, your parents probably said, study your vocabulary words or study your spelling words. And you went down and you wrote whatever that word was, you know, violence. So you wrote it V-I-O-L-E-N-C-E. -E, and you did that again and again and again and again. You might've wrote it a hundred times trying to burn it into your memory so that on Friday you would remember, right? So yeah. that's, pretty, that's a common experience to all of us, right? Yeah. So that is called rote memorization, and it's an encoding technique. Now, it's the least effective code encoding technique, but it's, it's kind of a necessary one. So, so to put it in our context of martial arts, imagine if you're in class and somebody shows you a technique. What do you do? Well, then you go do that technique several times, right? So you have, you have started on the encoding process in the first and necessary step, which is rote memorization. And so you might do it three, four, five, ten times in a row like that, right? Yeah, that's a so, common pattern, yep. Right, so, you, so you, it's kind of that you must do that, right? Well, and if you're going to do better than those writing that spelling word ten times on Monday and then having to spell it again four weeks later, that's just exactly how effective it will be if you do, you know, 10 repetitions of the technique and then go on to the next one. Um, you're going to have to get a little more involved in the encoding process, right? So just for example, in, in, uh, in spelling, what you might do, or in your vocabulary, what you might do is you might then take those words and then put them into sentences, right? So you would have to write a sentence that includes the word violence, like, Today, Joe and Matt are going to talk about managing violence on the podcast. So now you would have to remember how to spell the word while you are formulating this sentence and understanding the meaning of the sentence. Okay. So the principle that, that the principle here is that the encoding process becomes more efficient the more of your brain that you use while you're doing it. Okay, so imagine it's not just remembering to spell the word. You have to know what the word means, and you have to fit it into a sentence. And then when you're other doing other words, so I'm spelling, I'm, spelling, I'm spelling out the other words in the sentence I just used, and when I get to the word violence, again, I have to spell it correctly. So I've engaged more of my brain, right? So in a, in a martial arts uh, sort of context, in our program, in the Army's Commanders program, we put the, the fundamental techniques into a series of drills. And the drills can be thought of as kata, right? Like it's, you, you put a, a, 
you do technique one, two, and three, and four, and our drills, they'll be around. So you'll do like the three or four techniques, and then that brings you back to where the other person will do their three or four techniques in a row. But the point really is that the kata, you know, these 15 techniques in a row, that's a sentence. And you're more likely to remember the technique or the details of the technique since you've put it into that sentence. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I'm actually uh, drawing some parallels with what you're talking about there with um, something um, I heard first heard from Matt Thornton probably 10 or 15 years ago with his eye method of uh, introducing isolation and then integration as a, as a learning methodology to, uh, to teach technique. It's very, very similar. Exactly. You know, Matt, I think Matt, Matt Thornton is one of the few people in the martial arts that I think is a real genius. So anybody who could get the chance to listen to him or read anything he's written, let me recommend it because I think he's super smart, right? Yeah, he's a real smart guy. And he was actually uh, on the podcast last season. So I recommend anyone check that out if they haven't already. Oh, yeah. So, so that's, the, that's the, the, the second sort of encoding technique, right? So, so now imagine what we would do better even than putting them in sentences. So if you, if you imagine this, like, so imagine when we're talking about ground grappling now because it will, it'll, it'll become obvious why I'm talking about this in a second. But if, if I said in ground grappling, what's the worst place you can be? Well, most people who have experience with jujitsu or, or most ground grappling would say the worst place is when somebody's got the back mount on you, right? They're, they got their hooks in and they're working for a choke. I say, okay, so is it better that they be mounted on you, sitting on your stomach or on your back? And most everybody would, would agree in that world that it's better to have them mounted on you than it is to have them on your back. Okay, so if, if it's better to have them mounted than on your back, is it better to have them mounted or in side control? So it's, it's slightly better for you if they're in side control than if they were mounted, right? And yeah. so is it, better to, is it better to have them in side control on you or to place them inside your guard? So that's slightly better, right? You can say, okay, would it be better to be in their guard or, or you or have them in your guard or, or for you to be in their guard? And it's debatable which one of those is better, but but let's just say that whenever you have them in your guard, you have a lot of tools at your disposal. And when you're in their guard, you have fewer tools, but you're on the attack, right? So that's the difference between those two positions. Um, but if it's say, okay, what well, if it's better to be, is it better to be inside their guard or to be inside control on them? Well, that's slightly better, right? And then is it better to be inside control or mounted? Well, it's slightly better to be mounted. And if it's, is it better to be mounted or is it better to have the rear mount on them? And so it's slightly better to have the rear mount, right? So, so what we've outlined and making allowances for the little disagreement about which is better to be in or their guard or in theirs, but what we've outlined is the basic concept of the hierarchy of position that exists in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's perfectly. So, yeah, so most of, most of the Jiu-Jitsu world would would agree with that in general, right? So, so the reason I mentioned that is because that concept, that hierarchy of position, in, in learning theory, that's called a schema, right? And a schema is a larger picture that puts the other things you're learning into context. So for example, if we're gonna teach the majority of like, of old school Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu techniques, right? But they would fall somewhere in that schema. 
So it would be a way to get from side control to the mount, or a way to place the guy inside your guard, or a way to get from the mount to the back mount, or a way to pass the guard, or, or a way to get from when they're in your guard to the mount. It's some, some way you would be attempting to advance yourself along that hierarchy of position. So, so that, understanding that sort of framework of, of classical Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu gives you a learning aid to whatever technique you're gonna learn because as soon as you learn it, you, you, you can put it into context. You can say, oh yeah, it fits right here with all the other things that I know. Does that make sense? Yeah, so, so that's why, for example, it's easier to learn ground grappling in the jiu-jitsu world than it is in the judo world, even though most of the techniques are the same. The judo schema is not as, it's not as well laid out. You have, you know, basically you have pins and you have from those pins, but what's the relationship between each of those pins? Judo doesn't really spell it all out, whereas Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu does. And it's not even important that at some point you might outgrow that schema and disagree, you know, in your personal fighting whether you'd rather be mounted or in side control. It's less important because you, by the time I'm making that decision, you've already got that schema built into you and you have everything in context. Yeah, that's right. I mean, some people might end up specializing from half guard rather than full guard, or some people might you know, actually be quite comfortable attacking with a person on their back or like, you know, playing turtle or whatever. So yeah, but by the time they get to that point, then uh, the fundamentals are well established. Exactly. So, so what we do in, a, in the Army's combatants program that we teach to our soldiers is we have, we have a, a series of three drills and those three drills. So imagine the first drill is escape the mount and end up in the guy's guard. And the second one is you pass the guard. And the third one is you get it from side control into the mount. Those are the three techniques of the first drill. And the second technique would be you're mounted, you take the back and then the person escapes the back so that you're so that they're mounted and then the third tech the third drill would be you uh you um can't roll them out end up in their guard so you place them in your guard from you know you're mounted you place them in your guard and then after you place them in your guard you pull off a sweep and then you're mounted right so so that's notice i didn't mention any techniques i just mentioned the goals that the techniques we show are accomplishing does it make any difference which sweep you use? You end up, you tap them inside your legs and your guard, you sweep them and you end up mounted. And it doesn't matter which technique you use to pass the guard. You start out in their legs, you pass the guard, you get the side control and then to the mount, right? So after we teach them these, you know, how many techniques was that? Seven or something? It's not very many, right? After you teach them these seven or eight techniques, you can go to the class and you can say, okay, is it, you know, ask the questions I just asked. Is it better to have somebody on your back or mounted? And all the students will know the answers, even though you've never like articulated that before, because the techniques teach them the schema, right? So that's why the techniques were selected, right? They're not selected because they're the most, you know, it's, it's debatable, you know, what, how many ways are there to pass the guard, for example? So which one of those techniques should you teach first? Well, that's a question that like experienced martial artists can debate for years and never come to some conclusion because there isn't an answer. The ways you like to do it and the ways I like to do it are going to be different and they're going to be, we both have our good reasons. And if you take, 
you know, 100 black belts in, in jiu-jitsu and line them up and ask them the question, all of their answers will be valid. So you can't say, no, that was wrong. This was right. And I would say it doesn't even matter because you're going to teach them one of them and they're going to learn the schema that when you're in the guard, the best answer is to pass the guard. Hundred percent. I, I find when I when I've got beginners that are that are first rolling, um, you know, I, I'm a fan of getting people working in a in a sort of fun light role uh, fairly early. Uh, and one of the one of the things that I just do, uh, rather than teach them, okay, practice this technique, is just say, well, okay, you're in this position, you want to try and get to that position, figure it out, and, and you'll exactly. see what their natural inclinations are. Because as long as they understand what the goal is, they'll start problem solving it, and they'll do something that approximates a technique, and you can work on it from there. Yeah, and that, that you know that's uh, similar to Matt Thornton's idea of live training. You know, you 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 teach them what they're trying to accomplish, and then there are only so many ways your arm works, your elbow works, your hand works, etc. Eventually, you'll be coming up with good ideas, and and there's there's some real truth in that. And I would just point out that that you're giving them that schema, is giving them the framework within they will learn through the live method, and even if you come back to teaching them, you know, memorizing techniques, you're, you're going to teach it to them within that schema. So now the best way to think of that in, in our learning theory model is, uh, you know, you had your spelling words, right? First you memorized the spelling words by rote memorization, wrote them 15 times or a hundred times or whatever. Then you put them in sentences. And then the schema is like a paragraph that you would put the whole, all these sentences together. in. so now you have a coherent whole. Now, that's a great ex example of a paragraph because a paragraph is, does not a book make, right? So we have the, the, the schema of ground grappling within, you know, the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu framework that we can adopt. And you can disagree on this, on what exactly works in the schema and you can modify it to fit your needs, but it still functions as a schema, right? Even if you disagree with the, with what that hierarchy is. Um, but if we were going to teach somebody all about fighting, we would need more than just that one, right? We'd have to be putting the techniques of striking into their own schema like that. And we would have to take the techniques of takedowns, put them into their own. And these would form another whole, do you understand? When I'm getting a larger whole, but each of them would function as a memory aid or a tool, an encoding tool to get the techniques we're learning on any given day or any given week or in a month into our long-term memory with the goal of getting them where it's all natural, normal movement in our autonomic phase of the psychomotor learning process. Yeah. So if I'm understanding correctly so far, so, so essentially what we're trying to do is build a, a broad schema so that we can hopefully remove the, uh, as much of the, the actual thinking as possible so that things become more automatic and, uh, and uh, we're talking about broader general concepts as opposed to uh, intricacies of technique. Well, that's right. And, and so, so imagine the way your brain works, right? Like you, uh, um, your, your prefrontal cortex, believe it or not, your prefrontal cortex, so, so your, your spine and your entire nervous system is bifurcated. And the, that means it's got two main parts and the two main parts, which go through, through, throughout all the way from your fingertips, all the way through your spine, through your, through your brain itself, um, like, a, like your spine, it's divided front and back between the portions that receive information and then the portions that send out actions. Okay, and so your brain is the same way, although it goes up through your spine and your brain is kind of a, 
S curve. It's kind of difficult to explain on the radio how your brain is laid out, but <coughs> pardon me. But the your prefrontal cortex, which is the part where we do all of our all of our uh, you know higher thinking and whatnot, it's on the portion of our brain which is involved with sensory input. So we see things, we feel things, we we have all of our senses, right? And that's how we make sense of the world. world. And then that information goes through um, the portions that is affective, meaning the portion that handles our emotions, the things we want to do, et cetera, and then spits out from there what we're going to actually do, our actions. Okay, so that's an important thing to note. Because when you hear, remember, you, you, you've all heard of the OODA loop, I'm sure, right? So that's... Yeah, I'm sure most of our listeners have come across the OODA loop before. Right. So, so the OODA loop is happening when you're in conscious thought mode, meaning if I don't have this the techniques built down into my autonomic nervous system, then the OODA loop is happening. I'm observing, I'm deciding, et cetera, right? Yeah. Okay, so when I, tu when I touch a hot stove... Deciding, acting, yeah. Right. So when I, when I touch a hot stove, that's not happening. You'd hope not. We're going to have burnt no, it's, it, no, it, no, no, it's not <laughs> happening because the way our nervous system is oriented, right, is, I mean, our way our nervous system works is that those nerves that are in our fingers, they are connected to not all the way to our prefrontal cortex and then back down through the action portions, right? They're connected at a whole bunch of different levels, right? So I'll give you an example, right? Whenever, when there are people who, um, who are blind, right? Fully blind, like can't see anything. And if you ask them questions about what they, what they see, they, they can't tell you. Who, who can nonetheless act um, as if they can without, without conscious sight? I can't remember the uh, exact details of the experiment, but they, they call it, um, well, blind sight. And so they, it's because the, the nerve from your, your ocular nerve goes to your, to your a portion of your cortex because that's the sensory input portion, right? But it doesn't only go there. It also goes down to the other portions of your brain. So for example, when you touch that hot stove, that, it, that muscles are gonna contract way before your conscious brain even knows that that finger's burning because this, the signals don't have to go all the way to your brain they can go directly to those muscles at some point and, and make it pull back, right? So that's your autonomic nervous system in action. Yeah, that's actually, why, yeah. You see what I mean? So that, that's why, for example, when you're skating, you're not thinking about it. You know, you're just skating. And so your body is just doing it. It's always, in my classes, I always point out, I was walk across a classroom and say, look, this skill, which we all take for granted, took us all a year to learn. But now we don't think about it while we do it. It's just part of us. It's just the way we are. So, you know, you can lobotomize somebody, disconnect their prefrontal cortex. They can still live. Their heart will keep beating and they can still walk. Yeah, it's, uh, it's incredible what, we, what we're able to adapt to. I mean, I've, I remember the first time I, I sparred with a, with a pro fighter, with a, a pro tie boxer. And, um, yeah, I was, I was never a very good tie boxer by any stretch, but... Um, I thought I was competent. I have, a, I have a very similar experience at not being very good at the time boxing. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but what actually 
caught me was was obviously he's being nice to me and not not brutalizing me like he certainly could have um but it was just the effortlessness of the movement i mean he was never at the range that i wanted him to be at and i mean he was he was a lot smaller than me um but uh he just played with me just with distance uh, he barely touched me and but i i could i couldn't land a shot on him unless he wanted me to and uh it wasn't like he was thinking about his footwork or thinking about his head movement it was just instinctive for him he knew he knew instinctive where, where my range was, how I was moving and where he had to be. And uh, he was just thinking about literally, he was probably thinking about lunch, to be honest. Like he wasn't really thinking about me hurting him. That's exactly right. And you know, you, I'll, give you a, I'll give you a great example from the, from the sport of MMA, right? Or from wrestling in MMA. So one of the key things that you have to learn in wrestling to be effective is to reshoot. You know, when's the, when's the most effective time to take somebody down or to try your takedown? Well, it's whenever they... Your opponent has just tried and you have stuffed him or you have just tried and he stuffed you right at that second, right? That's the time when you need to try again, right? Or try your next technique, right? And so in the way the rules within American folk style wrestling work, that typically means like you shoot a double leg right then, right? You try a double leg, it doesn't work. You shoot another one right then. Or he tries one, doesn't work. You shoot another one right then. So people who grew up wrestling in the United States, you know, they might've been doing it since they were three. So they will have that reshoot deep program, man. It's way down to their autonomic nervous system. They're definitely not consciously shooting. They're just shooting because they feel the last technique, right? It's like a cue. So when you fight one of those guys at MMA, when you punch him, imagine you land that right cross, you know, bam, you hit him right on the button, right? So they will in large, in many, many cases, they will right then, as their brain is short circuiting from that punch, shoot. Because they've, it's built in, right? They've, they've done so much work making sure it's there. So when you fight a guy that's got a lot of wrestling experience and you punch him in the mouth, you should throw a knee right then. Because the odds are he'll shoot right into it. Because it's, auto, <laughs> really because it's auto, automatic, right? His brain isn't working, right? He's just... It's, it's, his, it's his autonomic nervous system telling him to shoot. And so, you know, that's, that's for, uh, just for example, a way you can take advantage of this knowledge. You can, you can understand what people do and are what skills they've got and how they work, you know? So yeah, actually, uh, it just, <laughs> just a quick sidetrack, but uh, it just reminded me of an old school pride fight with uh, uh, Fujita versus Fedor, where Fujita rocked Fedor. And I think he was so surprised that he had rocked Fedor that he didn't take advantage of it. He went straight to a clinch. And it was like, <laughs> it was like, it, it was like his brain kind of misfired. He's like, I wasn't, I wasn't ready to actually <laughs> hurt this guy. I thought. <laughs> so he just, yeah, it's funny. Yeah. I used to have this fighter I trained. I, he was a really, really nice fellow, you know, and I had to teach him to be mean in the, in the ring. So, you know, when, you, when you're boxing or kickboxing or something and you hit somebody, you got to smell the blood, right? And you got to immediately like pounce on them if you're going to finish them while they have that moment when they're all dazed, right? And so so that's, that's something you have to teach people too. That's the same way. You have to teach them that reshoot. You can tell you're going to Teaching somebody how to reshoot like that in wrestling, which is super important. You can't be a good folk style wrestler without in America. So, so, but teaching them that at first it's cognitive, right? At the beginning, you're going to say, no, that's when you need to shoot. And then they will consciously be doing it when they're little and they'll be slow, right? Cause it's not automatic yet, but then eventually it, you work it down into their autonomic nervous system and then it's automatic response. And then, very difficult to train yourself out of something that you've got that deep into you. 
it's going to be an unconscious response. I think if you uh, connect that to, to wrestling and MMA again, and um, yeah, we're, we're using martial arts examples, but that's, yeah, that's what we're talking about. Um, it, you see the same issues, especially early on with wrestlers not being able to, uh, or not being comfortable playing guard because they had to fight so much instinct to get off their back all the time. And they were, con- they were consistently turning into turtle positions and, and uh, suffering because of that uh, in the early days. Uh, because yeah. that conditioned response was so strong to not be on their back under any circumstances. Yeah, and, and, and once you can get those guys past that initial portion, you can build up enough experience on their back where they can become comfortable there. But, <clears throat> but it's a long process because you're, you're overcoming. You know, so, so just so everybody's tracking, the way, your, the, brain, the way your brain works is that you're forming synapses, right? So, so your cells of your brain are connected to each other, and then they, you strengthen those connections every time you try to do a, a skill. So you do it, then you do it, then you do it. It's like you're, a good way to imagine it is you have a table and, you're, and you are, are drawing a, a, a knife across that table. So the first time you draw it, it makes barely any impression at all. But if you do it a thousand times, pretty soon there's a groove there, right? And when you roll a ball across that table, it's liable to fall into that groove because the groove becomes deeper and deeper. So that's exactly what's going on with the synapses in your brain. They're, they're forming these larger and larger connections so that they become the normal, natural connection. Because no two movements are exactly the same, right? Every time you take a step, it isn't the same as the step prior or it isn't the same as any step you've ever taken before, but it's similar. And so the, the grooves are more like a stream bed, you know, like, like they're all going to be around the same. And the more you do it, the more you're going to be able to approximate that. Which, which kind of gets us into, well, there's one more thing I should mention before we come back to that. But so, so one more sort of thing to understand about the encoding process, right? Is, is imagine that when you give people your, that same idea that you're going to involve more of your brain in the process and that's going to help you move it into your autonomic nervous system better, right? So imagine this. Whenever you, when you mount on somebody, as an example, and you start punching them in the face, right? What actions might they take? Okay, so, so <clears throat> they might block with their hands straight above their head, right? In which case, you could conceivably push their arm down and get an American on them. Okay, or they might block with their arms across their face, in which case you might push their arm across and you know, get what we, we call a gift wrap, where you reach around and got their arm wrapped around their head. Or they might try to bench press you off, right? So if you were training that, you would put in the in a drill where you were saying, okay, you're going to pass the guard, you're going to get from side control to the mount, and when you get to the mount, you're going to start punching them. They might respond with one of these three cues, and I say cues because each of those actions is associated with another, with a reaction on your part, which will be the technique you do, right? Yeah. So yeah. so if you're trying to teach somebody to remember how to do an Americana, or trying to teach them how to get the gift wrap or trying to teach them how to get a straight arm bar if somebody pushes you away. If you put it into that context, each time you get there, you've got Pavlovian conditioning, right? You've got a little bit of stimulus and response. They do action A, and then you respond with the appropriate technique. And so that, because it's given that sensory feedback of them doing the physical technique um, that cues you into the next thing you're involving more of your nervous system and more of your brain and everything in the memorization process 
And so it will be an aid to encoding those techniques into your brain, right? So a similar thing is going on with, with chain wrestling, right? Like I always, I always like to point out, you know, what does every wrestling coach in the world know that, that virtually no one who's teaching something billed as self-defense doesn't know? And that is how you control people when you're engaged with them. So here's what I mean, right? So the idea of self-defense, which I, I try to never use that verbiage, but the idea of self-defense, the very concept of it seeds the initiative. So every self-defense technique is they attack you like this, and then you respond like that, right? So for example, our army taught the defense to the right cross, which was actually mostly a overhand right, like a sloppy overhand right, you would defend by first putting up a old school karate style uh, block and then coming in with like a seonagi um, to once you blocked the technique, right? And they taught that, that was in our manual from 1905 all the way to the 1992 manual. Seonagi is re as a response to the overhand right. And how many soldiers actually ever pulled that off? <laughs> That's and 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 there was you know there was a video of somebody I don't know where it was Brazil or something recently doing that to somebody who was trying to hit him with a machete and I thought wow it's so badass that they really pulled that technique off because the tr because the truth is you very seldom do because imagine you're standing in front of somebody how many ways could they attack you yeah so many yeah. yeah so many that you know that what's really going to happen when they start trying to attack you is you're you know what what theoretically what happened is all this data processing, right? He starts to hit you and you think, ah, shit, he's hitting me. And then what's the appropriate response? And then you execute that technique in the time it takes him to hit you, right? And the truth is, unless you've done that so many times that it's just automatic, you're just gonna get hit in the mouth because it's too much data processing for, you know, the whole OODA loop thing isn't happening in the time that it takes them to hit you, okay? so. So, so the whole idea of self-defense, seeding the initiative, them, initiative to them and then coming up with the appropriate response in the time it takes them to attack you, that's a super difficult, it's not that it can't be done, right? It can be done, but it can be done by somebody who is a really good martial artist who's done a whole lot of training, right? Because it's gonna take a lot of time to get that many responses where they're automatic so that you can res respond effectively to some unpredictable attack. Okay. And so, I think that's, so, so just to, just to interject there, I think that's one of the biggest challenges when with quote unquote self-defense is that um, we know as instructors or as, um, yeah, as, as competent martial artists, hopefully that, uh, that, that is a, is a, is a weakness in a, in a, in a system in, in that waiting for your opponent to act and then trying to decide on an appropriate response is, is a terrible idea. You always want to be taking the initiative and, and preempting as much as you possibly can, but trying to fit that with that in with, uh, within a civilian legal context, uh, and <laughs> to some extent educating a judiciary <laughs> on, on why this was necessary can be a real challenge and, and trying to teach, uh, preemptive measures that keep people safe legally is, is a challenge. Well, so, so I'll, I'll come back to that in just a second. So imagine what any wrestling coach in the world would teach you about how to handle a confrontation. So we're not talking about, I'll come back to the legal aspects and what you would want to do in a civilian context, but imagine a wrestling coach would just say, attack the guy, right? So what happens when you attack the guy? He's got to respond. And when he responds, it will either be appropriate response or an inappropriate response, right? 
So how many appropriate responses are there to whatever attack you're going to do? Well, they're limited. So therefore, you control the person by attacking them, right? So imagine you throw the overhand right. What's the guy going to do that's, that's the right thing to do? Well, he'll have to defend that. So I might have a, you know, bring his hand up to defend the, to the strike coming in like, a, like a, any boxer or kickboxer would, right? And if you throw that overhand right, it's, you know he's going to do that. So therefore, you're controlling his actions. So you can have your next move in the can, right? You can have the next one on tap, ready to go, prepping for his response. And maybe he's got two or three possible responses. So you can have two or three can, you can have two or three things in the can that you have practiced in response to the stimulus of him responding appropriately, right? Yeah, so either, by initiating the action, you're controlling the number of variables that are going to come back at you, whereas before... Exactly right, right? So, exactly right. So in wrestling, that's just called chain wrestling, right? And that's the way, they, that's the way all the best wrestlers in the world are practicing it right now. I'm going to try this move. It's either going to work or he's going to do A, B, or C. He does A, I do this. He does B, I do this. He does C, I do this. So you can practice that a lot. And if you, if you practice like that, then you can have your next move, you know, just to be fluid, natural flow, et cetera. And as long as you're on the offense, that's what's going, that, that can be going on, right? So, so, so I would say if, if, you're, if you're going to, that's an important thing because you're using that same encoding technique to be able to get those, to get those techniques where they're, in your autonomic nervous system and you can execute them in real time, right? And so if we come back to the legal question, then you can say, okay, so what should your response be when attack happens? Mostly you're just gonna have to have, you have to have a response that is, um, that is gonna handle most every attack because you're not gonna be probably able to figure out what the attack is in the meantime. And then that, your response is going to initiate action on his part, which is predictable in the way that we just described, right? So you come in like a, like a rhino block or like, you know, Blower spear thing or et cetera, et cetera. Those are all kind of things that you can put into your autonomic nervous system by practicing them as responses to a whole bunch of attacks and they will mostly handle it. So that's a realistic way to be able to, you know, as a, as a quote, self-defense technique, of seizing the initiative in response to attack. Yeah, one of, one of my favorite systems that I've uh, trained in over the years, uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it at all, was the, uh, the ISR matrix uh, system, which was um, created by Luis Gutierrez uh, and, and a bunch of the straight blast guys. And uh, what I really liked about it was designed for law enforcement. And uh, it, it did exactly what you're talking about. It limited the, the range of techniques to a small number, but each technique led into a, a, a series of possible responses or defenses that the, the perpetrator of the subject may try to use. And then you had a conditioned uh, cue to react in a certain way that it inevitably ended up with you uh, controlling and restraining the, the subject um, in any number of ways. And the, the, the base system when I learned it, uh, which was, you know, I know it's evolved since then, but the base system was essentially nine techniques uh, and if you put a bunch of um, yeah, relatively physically able people into a three, or five, three to five days of training, they could get quite confident and get a lot of reps into those nine techniques responding to realistic stimulus. And uh, it actually had a really good um, application. I, I know I did five days of it straight up and uh, I was using the stuff you know, that basically the next week uh, at work, I was still working as a, as a bouncer at the time and I was using that stuff immediately, which was I'd never had before attending a seminar. 
So that's a, so great, that's a great example because what, what you see there is, I don't know how many techniques, they taught you nine techniques over, over those days, but what they really did that was important was they used an encoding technique so that you remembered those techniques, you know, six weeks later, six months later, because it was encoded. It was more likely to be in your autonomic nervous system. And if you use those techniques we're talking about, you know, stimulus response, you know, just sort of Pavlovian conditioning and and that chain wrestling model, then pretty soon you really do learn something. You take it away. I mean, how many people have been to a seminar? Um, you know, I, I, I'm going to, I'll leave the name off, but I remember going to a seminar one time many years ago by one of the biggest names in the business. And he must've shown, man, I, I'll tell you why that guy showed more in the, in the two day seminar uh, than I know now. Right. <laughs> so this is 20, 20 years of training later. Right. And our, I remember walking out and going, wow, that was so impressive. That guy knows so much. It's crazy, right? And I didn't learn anything. I couldn't tell you what techniques were in. I couldn't tell you what sort of techniques were involved because it was totally, you know, into my short-term memory and then flushed as the next thing was put in. And, and that ISR is a great example, right? Like, so, so, you know, if you take it too, if you take it as in, as in the techniques didn't matter that much because the principle is what really matters. Because you and I, and you know, a 115 pound lady and then a 275 you know, pound man, we're all gonna have different techniques that work for us because our body styles are different. We might find ourselves in different tactical scenarios, and et cetera. So what you can do with a system like that is you can introduce the training concept to people and then, like all real training, you're putting the person on a voyage of discovery, but you're saying, look, here, here's a principle of how you would train techniques. Because if you took, if you would do a survey of all the best, you know, judo players in the world and the best wrestlers in the world, the best, you would have a very similar skill range, meaning the number of techniques and how they approach uh, training those techniques. But the techniques wouldn't be the same at all. You know, there'll be some fundamentals that, and what I mean by fundamentals, let's use the, the Matt Thornton version of, I think he's the one who said, uh, you know, fundamental is something that every single black belt does. You know, like there's not a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt in the world that doesn't do the Mataleon, right? Not a one, there's not a single one. So that's a fundamental. But there's lots and lots who don't do the Barambolo. Okay, so not a fundamental, right? So if you take that, there's a few things that are fundamentals that everybody does but there are a very small number of things. Mostly you have this, this principle of training that's gonna, and these schema that are gonna pull your techniques together and then you're gonna come up, like you might like, like the best judo guy in the world's probably got three throws on his left and two on his right or vice versa or something like that that he uses for m almost everything he does. But he's got those put into a system where when he tries them, they flow together and he can hit those one those moves over and over again. Does that make sense? And that's that's even taking into account that sportive applications of techniques, they limit the tactical scenarios down so that you can have a very small, much smaller uh, amount of technique and still shine. Yeah, actually, um, one of my personal experiences as a as a young judo player, yeah, growing growing up here doing judo, we learned pretty much the entire syllabus from yeah, the, we we learned the gokyo pretty much um, from day one uh, because you needed to be able to demonstrate all the throws for each grading and so on. So you everyone had I would guess a um, a very base level understanding of how all the different techniques worked, and uh, 
I remember the first time we had a competitive uh, university player from Japan. Actually, I think he might have even been a high school player, but we had high school and, and university players from Japan that would come and visit occasionally. And um, yeah, these guys were first, second, third degree black belts. And uh, they would absolutely destroy all of us, of course. Um, but they would, they would only do it with one or two techniques. And I remember once we, we had a visiting uh, black belt and he was watching, um, watching some of our practice and he said, oh, you guys know more techniques than me. Uh, and we're like, really? And he, he said, yeah, I've, I've never seen these techniques before. And they were basic Gokyo techniques. Um, but the way he was trained was very early on, it was identified he was a Sianagi specialist. And uh, he had about 15 different ways of coaxing someone into a Sianagi and then absolutely drilling them with that one throw. And uh, yeah. he explained to me that they, they didn't bother learning the rest of the Gokyo until basically after they'd retired from competition because it was just a distraction. So it was, that was something he did in retirement, more or less, uh, whereas uh, we taught it from, from day one. Uh, and because of that, they were extremely good at hitting one, two or three different techniques. And it's very, very rare even now to find a competitive player who mixes up their winning techniques um, beyond you know, maybe three. And, uh, well, and I, I, I agree with that. And I would also add that, that the tactical situations of, uh, of competition, the, the, just the concept we were just mentioning about limiting the tactical situations, right? So remember the most people, uh, many people might remember the fight between Marilla Bustamante and Matt Lindlin. It was a great, great early MMA fight. And Matt Lindland had just come off like two months prior of winning the silver medal in Greco at the Olympics. And so when he got in to fight uh, Bustamante, uh, lo and behold, Bustamante is the one who hit all the takedowns. And so how, how can this be? You know, how can this, the, the second best wrestler or Greco-Roman wrestler in this weight class get taken down by this? you know, jiu-jitsu guy, a high-level jiu-jitsu guy, but still certainly not a specialist in takedowns. And the, the reason was because the setups in MMA are completely different than the setups in Greco. And so it wasn't just the technique, right? The techniques have to be in context. So, yeah, it's true. Matt Lillard probably had better takedowns. He just never got a chance to use them because the setup for the double leg, and, you know, it's not a good example because it's not a Greco technique, but, but the setup for whatever throw you're taking might be, you know, hitting the guy with the, with the jab as you circle to the left and then and then cutting back across, you know, whatever. It might be then a, a, a real leg round kick or something to then set up the single leg. And so, so Bustamante had all his techniques, which were probably, you know, less, they weren't probably as good as the techniques, but they were better because they had a better setup than the setup that he had drilled. So it, that's the, back to that concept of, of uh, you know, Pavlovian training. You're going to drill it in that context. Yeah, I'm going to do this, this, and this, and then he can, can he'll respond in a in a way that's predictable. So therefore, I'll have my technique in the you know ready for him. So, you know, and, and I should mention. Imagine, one of the problems, you know, my my actual specialty is how you would train organizations, right? How you would create training programs that would get the members of an organization to have um, some abilities. Imagine the challenge there is that the difference between every civilian martial arts instructor in the world and, and a combative te teacher or a, or a defensive tactics teacher for police or something like that, the difference is, is self-motivated students, right? There's, there's not a police force you know, above seven or eight members in the world probably that is uh, 
100% self-motivated and want to learn whatever it is you're teaching them as, you're, as their martial arts teacher. So that's teaching people who are not self-motivated to learn. That's not within the expertise of most martial arts teachers. You know, I think we mentioned it before, but I, have, you know, I, have a, I had a commercial school. And every single person who walks through the door of that school is self-motivated. They come there because they want to learn. But when you're trained in a unit, it doesn't matter what unit, right? When you're trained in a, a, a unit, the percentage of people who are self-motivated to train is small. So how do you structure training in a way that's going to get all of those people to learn something? That's a, that's a challenge that is not. So, so what ends up happening is that, that the, the same mistake gets made over and over again. You know, the commander of the organization wants to have martial arts training. So they, they say, okay, hey, we're, we're going to have martial arts training. So we're going to have this much time. They look at their schedule and say, we're going to get dedicate this much time to. So it doesn't matter how much time. They say, you know, four hours this week or, or four hours for the next eight Saturdays in a row. Doesn't make any difference how much. And the next thing they might say is, okay, well, who's going to teach it? So then they get some martial arts teacher, right? It doesn't matter who it is. It could be the janitor or the UFC champion or the holder of the Red Sash and five manable Kung Fu. It doesn't make any difference who. Because what they're probably going to do is look at that amount of time, think about all the techniques they've learned in their 27 years of experience, and come up with the techniques that they think are, are going to be fit the tactical situation of the organization and that are easy to learn. That seems to make total sense, doesn't it? And that's why everybody always does it. But we also know the results of that. What would, what will happen? It's not any different if I'm doing that with like a counter terror, you know, assault unit or uh, the women of, of AFLAC and I'm just trying to teach them how to defend themselves against rapists. The results will be, they'll come in for those four hours. They'll do the 17 techniques you teach them that day. Never doing any encoding and then it'll be as if you never did the training. Yeah. Yeah. It, it really understanding how we, how we go about, yeah, as you've, as you've talked about in this whole, <coughs> excuse me, uh, as you've talked about in the whole episode, um, uh, understanding how you actually impart skill uh, is, is so incredibly important because otherwise you, you really, you are just ticking a box. You, you provided training, uh, but you haven't actually made any difference in capability or, or skill acquisition. It's probably important too that we we discuss the differences in types of physical skills. And so what I mean by that is imagine a skill like um, like learning a golf swing. Okay. So learning a golf swing is a closed skill. And what I mean by that is it doesn't require sensory feedback. So when I learn the technique, right, it's the same. It's the same psychomotor learning process. I see the technique done. My brain is, this is the cognitive phase. My brain is trying to tell my body how to do it. It's a, it's, you know, at first it's not very good. I can use the, one of the, or the encoding techniques we've talked about. In this case, it would probably be rote memorization. And I, I should note, even in the rote memorization process, whenever I have a, a, a complicated technique, like a golf swing or like a takedown or anything. It doesn't matter. The technique has a lot of details, right? So we know that practice doesn't make purpose, right? Perfect, right? Practice makes permanent. So, and this is a common trope, but you know, perfect practice makes perfect, right? You need to do the technique correctly if you're gonna be able to learn the technique correctly. So 
how do we how do we do that when we halfway know a skill? You know, where that, that means it's it's not good. You look around at any class when you show them, you know, whatever technique you're going to show them, you're going to show them how to take the back from from, uh, from uh, uh, the guard or whatever. When they start doing the technique, it's going to be terrible, and all the details will be wrong. So how do you make that training more effective? Well, the best way is to trick your brain into thinking that you're doing perfect technique, right? So you give them a detail to focus on. You know, hold your mouth like this. Doesn't matter what the detail is, because we're not, you know, it's, we're not really, doesn't matter which technique we're talking about, it works the same. I say, oh, hold your hand like this each time you do this technique for the next few iterations. And then you're gonna come back later and give them another detail. Okay, now when you're doing it, think about this detail, put your knee here. And then slowly, after, after you've done that a bunch, you're slowly ratcheting down their technique, right? You're slowly getting it better and better and better. So back to our golf analogy, you know, hold your, your feet should be like this. When you swing, your thumbs should be like this. You should hold your shoulder like this. These are the details you're giving them each time and you're slowly ratcheting down that technique. So it's getting better and better and better, right? And better, what I mean by that in the context of closed skills is you're perfecting all the details so it's exactly like you want it to be. Okay, so that's closed skills, like a golf swing. Now, other skills are open skills. They take sensory feedback. So, for example, passing a basketball. Okay, so when you first start to teach somebody to pass a basketball, it's going to be exactly like you were teaching them how to do that golf swing, right? You're going to say, stand like this, put your hands like this, pass the basketball this. And you might give them those details for a while, too. But then you've got to start adding sensory feedback. So that might be now... The two of us are going to walk as we pass this basketball back and forth. Now we're going to add a bounce in between us. Now, and, and you're going to start adding more and more and more sensory feedback until eventually, unlike the golf swing, the golf swing, we can look at the best guy in the world and we can look at video of him and we can say, you should do it just like that. You could try to recreate that. You could concentrate on the little details. But the basketball pass is going to be completely different. Every time they do it, because sensory feedback is almost all of the actual skill. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so interesting. So, so whenever you think about that, think about it in terms of the training that we're doing in the martial arts. So just imagine, you know, I started out, my first two martial arts were judo and karate. So when I, when I was doing karate, um, you're, when you have the, the concept of kata in, in karate, right? So there's no sensory feedback in that skill. So you're training a skill, which is fighting, which is an open skill. It's almost all sensory feedback, right? And you're training it as if it were a golf swing or a close, or a close skill with no sensory feedback. So then you can get a guy that's done 10,000 hours of kata. And he'll have the movement patterns of those techniques burned into him, right? Because he's done it so many times. Doing that technique, he could probably think about his taxes while he was doing executing the kata, so long as there's no sensory feedback. So as soon as you add this, something they haven't put into the training at all, all of a sudden you end up with those karate guys in the early UFCs who turns out they didn't know how to fight at all, right? Because they missed this super significant difference between an open skill and a closed skill. That's really fascinating. I think that's, uh, that's a, such, a, such a good topic um just the the difference in those types of skills and and how you can see someone who is on the surface extremely talented and skilled and and uh, very good at replicating technique who 
gets that wide-eyed panic the second it doesn't work or the, the second it doesn't doesn't play out the way they want it to and you know you can you can spend hours on youtube just watching examples of that happening in the martial arts but uh yeah it's uh, uh that, that's just a great way of explaining it. i've never heard it described that way before so thank you for that well i'll give another i'll give another sort of example that you see all the time even in open skills right so how many people have you seen who can hit the mitts and just bang away at the mitts but when they are actually boxing they they are less effective yeah that's because that's because most most of the way or many people the way they train uh mitt training it's it's just memorizing patterns so memorizing patterns it's useful you know when you when you start off to hit somebody it's useful in the early days to, to have an idea of a combo that you would like to throw. You know, like when, when you initiate that jab, maybe you're saying, okay, I'm going to double up the jab, then I'm going to throw the cross, then the hook. So you throw a whole bunch of those, you know, double jab, cross hooks, and then you're likely to continue throwing those in the middle of the melee, right? So, so it's got its uses to do it that way. But if you're mid-training – is all that it's memorizing patterns like that. I mean, how many, like another good example is you, you would see people all the time, like throw like a jab cross hook or a jab cross. Then the, then the mitt holder swings at their head. So they do a perfect, uh, you know, duck underneath and then come back up with a cross or, or something like that. It, and, and as long as that comes on the cue, which in this case is timing, right? One, two, then this, then that, right? If as long as that happens, they look great, but that's just not how punches come in real fights, is it? So what's the real cue? So your mitt work has to take that into consideration that the bad guy can is not going to do predictable things in that regard, or they're predictable, but not they're not predictable in the way that mitt holding with a pattern is. See what I mean? Yeah, actually, <laughs> you <laughs> me, uh, uh, Richard Dimitri, who was the my last guest on the podcast. Uh, Rich um, told me years ago that the training that way is like trying to memorize a conversation before it's happened. And he said, imagine if you went. That's on, a great analogy. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, it's, it's like imagine you went on a date and you were planning beforehand. You go, well, first I'm going to ask her what she does for a living, and then I'm going to ask her if she likes her job, and then I'm going to ask her if she gets along with the boss. And then the first time you ask the question of uh, what do you do for a living? And she said, well, I'm, I'm in between jobs right now. I'm looking for something else. And then you say, well, do you like your job? Uh, you look like an idiot because, because yeah. you've, you've, you're executing a memorized pattern as opposed to react yeah. naturally. That's perfect. And, and if you think about that concept of the closed skill and the open skill, you know, mid holding is a closed skill. If you're memorizing the patterns, you're, you're just, you're, it's closed. So you can be perfect at that. And it, it will, it's very limited applicability to the open context that you're going to have to actually execute in. Yeah, that's fascinating. All right, we might uh, we might draw this this section to a close now because uh, we have been we have been talking for a little while and we we could do this for hours. But uh, you know what? We're, we we need to leave room for uh, for a third episode at some point. So, uh, okay, great. <laughs> for the for the sake of uh, listeners that want to know more about you or or book you or, or buy your books or do anything else, where can they go? I'm the easiest guy in the world to find on the internet, and uh, I'm not really commercial that much, so I'm just uh, Matt Larson, L-A-R-S-E-N, and um, hope to hear from you guys. And uh, I highly recommend you check out Matt's books. They're all on Amazon. Um, 
especially the uh, the Modern Army Combatives book. It's uh, it's fantastic. It goes into a lot of this material that we've talked about with uh, skill acquisition, how to actually teach, how to design a program, and a bit of history as well, which uh, I find personally after after reading probably way too many martial arts books, I find far more interesting than actually looking at techniques. So if you're into that, uh, by all means, buy that book because it's, uh, it's, it's a really good one. Uh, you won't regret that purchase. Thank you once again to Professor Matt Larson for that amazing insight, man. We went deep on that and such an important area of knowledge. It's such an important thing to know. How do you, how do you actually teach people? How do you learn things? And uh, that was just tremendous insight. I think this is one of those ones you might have to go back and listen to several times over and take notes. I know I have. I, by the time I've recorded this, I've actually listened to this three times already and I keep hearing things I hadn't noticed the last time around. So that was amazing. I'm going to, it's probably going to go in the books. It's another one of my most favorite episodes. And uh, look, as I said, Matt is one of my all-time favorite human beings in the martial arts and in the managing violence world. So it was always a pleasure for me. Now, if you would like more content from Matt, then you need to head over to patreon.com forward slash managing violence. If you sign up to be a uh, tribal council or tribal elder member, then you get bonus content from each and every guest starting this week with Mr. Matt Larson. Now, I asked Matt if we could do an extra 10 minutes to answer some uh, the magnificent seven bonus questions we've dubbed them. And he agreed to that. He said, yeah, sure, no problem. I asked for 10 minutes. He gave me over 30 minutes of content. So if you'd like to hear Matt answer those questions and get 30 minutes of bonus content with some amazing tangents, then uh, you need to head over to patreon.com forward slash managing violence and become a contributor and you will get all of that and so much more. That's it for me for Season 4, Episode 1 with Mr. Matt Larson. My name is Joe Saunders. This is the Managing Violence Podcast, and I look forward to talking to you again soon.